If you've been around Austin New Church for a while, we have this, this mantra kind of uh, deal that, that is uh, love your neighbor and serve your city. And so you, you'll hear that uh, hopefully frequently around here. So we're going to start uh, a two-week two series, uh, the next couple of weeks doing that. And today we're going to start talking about love your neighbor. Uh, let's pray before we do that. Father, we, uh, God, we're just grateful Lord, that you have given us a specific vision as a church. And God, we, uh, Lord, we want to be marked. We don't want to just have a mantra, a little vision. But we really want to be marked by uh, and to be a people um, individually and, and families and, and restore groups. And even corporately like this as a church that, that people say, yeah, that church, they love their neighbor. And yeah, they love, they serve their city. And so today and the next week, as, as this is in front of us, Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you'll give us revelation, that you'll give us ways to apply this in our own uh, neighborhoods, in our own culture, in our own uh, city and, and beyond. Lord, we, we just commit this morning to you and uh, we, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I think about loving your neighbor, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, that doesn't just happen. And uh, if I'm really going to be a person, if we're really going to be a people that love our neighbors, um, it's a long work. And, and I, I really believe loving your neighbor is something that is, is very laborious. It's very patient-filled. And in reality, it's going to take years and years and years to love our neighborhoods, to love our cities, to love those people that are around us. Because the reality is, in our culture, people are fairly skeptical of the church. And so because of that skepticism, it makes it more difficult for us to love them. But I also will say this. All the time, everywhere, there are people looking for a couple things. I believe all of us, including people here, not here, whatever, are all looking for hope. We're all looking for something bigger than ourselves. We want to be a part of that and, and I also think that, that people are looking for other people that are living like Jesus lived. People want to see that. And so as we begin to do that, maybe the best way that we could love our neighbors is just to live like Christ lived and allow people uh, to see that. Now, I think there is a theme verse in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Uh, and this should be in your outlines if you've got it, it'll be on the screen, hopefully, uh, that really summarizes what it means to, to love your neighbor, just kind of uh, capsulizes it for us, and it's this. Paul talking to this Thessalonian church, and he's just, uh, God, he's just encouraging them, just letting them know how committed he is to them and, and maybe the, the elders or the people of this church. He says this, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you, not only the gospel. And sometimes that's where it stops. We just share the gospel and then we just move on. What Paul's saying is, we loved you so much that, that we not only shared the gospel with you, but check it out, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Do you know the people around you? They really know, they really know if, if they're dear to you. I mean, you can't fake that. And Paul's like, hey, listen, 
You know that you're dear by the way we loved you, by the way we shared our lives to you. And so this whole loving your neighbor, it's, it's about giving and about sharing our lives and about sacrifice and about, about moving out of our comfort zone so that we can love those uh, people around you. Now, as I've been thinking about this passage and what we're going to talk about today for the last, I can't stand in front of you with integrity and just say, all right, everybody just go out and love your neighbor. <laughs> just go do that. Because there's really some conditions that when God talked about and he really put this whole love your neighbor thing biblically, there's some things around that that without a couple things attached to that, it's going to be a miserable effort trying to love your neighbor. Okay? And so one of the conditions is this, that we have to love God. If we don't love God, it's going to be very difficult for us to love our neighbor. Now I want to just, you don't have to go there, but I, I was... Uh, Looking at this, and I don't know where it came in the last couple of weeks, but uh, in Exodus 6, um, we see Moses has been called by God and to lead the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and under the power and slavery of Pharaoh. From, and here's what, here's what really sticks out to me about, about Moses in a huge way. From Exodus 6 to Exodus 14, every one of those chapters from the beginning says this, then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 6, and God told him, here's what I want you to do, Moses, and then Moses went and did it. Chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7, says the Lord said to Moses, told him something else to do. Chapter 8 starts, then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 9, then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. He's telling him to do these things. Like, hey, listen up, Pharaoh. I mean, like, basically the most powerful man. Uh, God's about to send a serious plague your way, a bunch of them. And so if you don't start listening up, I mean, it, this was heavy stuff that, that God was telling Moses to do. And in verse, uh, or in, in, in 11, God said to Moses, in chapter 12, God said to Moses and Aaron, go, go, go do these things. And in 13, same thing. In 14, then God said to Moses... And then you see in chapter 15, the beginning of 15, after he had done all these things that God told him to do because he loved God. And because he loved God, he loved his people. And when God spoke to him, he went and did those things. And so in chapter 15, we see then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. You talk about loving your neighbor. This is a man that loved God. And when God spoke to him, he went and he was obedient to what God said. So we can't love our neighbor unless we love God. The second thing is love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, if we don't have a healthy understanding of who we are and a healthy love. I'm not talking about arrogance or self-centeredness. That's not, that's not love. Okay, but we have to have a healthy love for who we are and what God has said about us and that we are children of God and we have to receive that grace and we have to personally receive that mercy. And when, when that is in us and we have this healthy love for ourselves, then we can love other people. If you don't love yourself in a healthy way, it's going to be very difficult for you to love somebody else. And so that's so important that we have that. And, 
you know, I don't have, you know, I can, we can look at Moses and all this, but this is a personal thing, see. Uh, for me, it was, I was 20 years old. I've uh, uh, been a Christian maybe a year and a half or so. And I just started reading the book of Ephesians. I, was, I read the book of Ephesians over and over for eight months. I listened to sermons. I mean, I just was consumed by it. And God began to really speak to me about who I was. And about what he had done in me. And because of that, I, ha- I formed from God's word a healthy love for myself. And what God uh, has said about me and what God has, has done for me. Now, love God. Love yourself. Love your neighbor. All right, let's talk about loving your neighbor. Go to Luke 10. Luke 10. We're going to look at the Good Samaritan this morning. And uh, this is, uh, we've certainly talked about this before. I know Brandon has taught on this several times. But this is about the heart. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about love your neighbor. I can't think of a better passage to talk about on a practical level. I'm just going to read it off my sheet. All right. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What is this guy's question? His initial question is, how do I relate right to God? How do I get eternal life? How, how am I going to relate with this God? And this guy responds, Leviticus 19. Love God, love your neighbor. He, he, he rolls this out. But then uh, Jesus says, great, then do this and you will live. You'll just go do this. But here's the problem with this guy. He hasn't been doing that. And here's how we know he hasn't been doing that. And so he's in front of all these people and all these people are like, well, that guy hadn't been doing that at all. (laughs) And he knows that. And the reason we know he knows that is because his next question, he shows his cards. This is what it says. But he wanted to justify himself. Anytime you're ready to justify yourself, you know something's wrong. He wanted to justify himself and he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because out of that, when that question is answered for him, there there lies the responsibility. Because if I know, biblically I know this person is my neighbor, then I am bound to love that person. I am to love that person. But this question is a question of exclusion. He's basically saying, which one of these people is my neighbor? And what he's really saying is, which one is not? Which one is... And which one is, is, is not. And the truth of it is, in that day, the Jewish uh, mindset and ways were this. The Jewish area was kind of like a melting pot. There was many nationalities there. Quite frankly, the Jewish people did not really like that, especially uh, Samaritans and whatnot. And 
there were a lot of those people around, and what they had decided is loving your neighbor means loving another Jew. Not loving this guy over here that's not like us, that doesn't believe us. And so this guy's saying, Jesus, who is my, my neighbor? Isn't it just us? And then Jesus doesn't answer the question. He tells a story. You know, when Jesus ever tells a story, you know you're in trouble. All right. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay. So these people were like, yeah, uh, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's a rough road. And I'm not surprised this guy that you're talking about, Jesus, got beat up. And it's on the side of the road, okay? This, is, this, is, this happened. This is a, kind of a normal thing. And so this guy was probably not totally naked. They probably took his outer garments. He had his undergarments still on, praise the Lord. And they probably, uh, the reason he was, they said half dead, he was probably unconscious. That means they probably stoned him to some point or they beat him with a club or, or something, uh, something like that. So now... Here, here's the tension. Is this person on the road that he's talking about in these Jewish mindsets, is this person a Jewish person? He's beat up. He's on the side of the road. Am I going to help him? But how do I identify him, whether he's a Jew or a non-Jew, if he's unconscious and he's not fully dressed, right? Right? Because there's certain things you know where somebody's from, right? By the way they dress, by the way their accent is, by the way they're from, right? So if I stood someone up on the stage who had tight, iron, creased jeans all the way down the front with a big wrangler on the back, with a big belt buckle here, with flappy kind of collars, with Pearl snaps running right here. You know what I'm talking about? Pointy cowboy boots and a big, huge cowboy hat. Are you going, yeah, that guy's from Rhode Island. (laughs) No. You're going, dude, that guy is from Tilden, Texas. And there's no difference here. Or if you go to New York or you go to Chicago and there's this certain accent, you know, all this accent, you would go, okay, well, that guy is from There, this is who he is. The problem here, this guy is unconscious and he's not dressed right. So Jesus took all the identifiers away that would say, this guy's a Jew, so we should help them. So the story uh, goes on. A priest, so he's looking at this Jewish audience, he's a priest, and they're like, yeah, we know them. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So this guy gets there, this priest is there, and he sees this going on, and he walks around the other side. Now, why would a priest be going from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, the reason why is he was probably performing his priestly duties, ceremonial kind of things in the temple. That happened, and he was walking home, and he saw this guy. Now, a priest, if they got within six feet of a Gentile person, they would be considered unclean to do ceremonial things in the temple. Okay? Also, if a person was uh, dead, 
and this guy didn't know that, uh, they would also be considered unclean to do that. So this guy, it says here, he, he got to, to this place on the, on the road, and when he saw the man, he could have been 20 feet, 10, who knows. Well, when he saw him, he walked around the other way. All right. Now, another character walks up. So, too, a Levite, who are the assistants to the priest, when he came to, this, to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But it says that he came to the place. He probably walked right up to this guy, looked at him. Well, I, he can't talk. He doesn't have Jewish clothing on. I don't know if he is or not. I'm going to walk around him. And so he, he walks around him as, as well. I will say this. I think this Levite saw the priest walk around him as well. I don't think there was like this big distance in between them. They probably both were involved in ceremony stuff and they kind of left at the same time. And he probably saw him walk around. Okay, and so this guy also uh, walks around. Now, this is where it gets a little exciting. Verse 33, but a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. But a Samaritan? What? If you're a Jewish person listening to this story, you're like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? You went from talking about our priests to our Levites, and now you're talking about a Samaritan? Jesus, you just walked a Samaritan. It'd be like this. Yeah, I was for us here in this room, be like, yeah, we were having our 4th of July party this year, and I had a bunch of my Al-Qaeda friends come over, and we had a great time. That ain't going to work, folks. That's in their mindset. What are you ta- That's not working here. You mean a Samaritan walked up? The Jewish people could not stand them. They, they hated Samaritans because they... They married Gentiles and they had another place of worship outside of Jerusalem. And so there was this huge dislike between, uh, between the Jewish people and uh, the Samaritans. So everybody listening to this message, all of a sudden there's a despise, there's a, this hate, there's this dislike uh, for Samaritans. And so they're trying to figure out, is this guy our, our neighbor? Are we going to help them? Let me, how many people saw this man? Let me, this is, these are quite, anybody? How many people so far we got in the store, they walked up on this guy? How many? Three. Three people, right? The priest, the Levite, they saw him. How many people actually walked up to him? Two. The Levite, the, the, the Levite and the Samaritan man. But the real question is, how many of them actually did something? One. One person did something. Now, the question is this, why? Why did the Samaritan do something about it? See, there's this thing. That God gives us. And the difference is this. The difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. The difference maker in this passage is this. It's compassion. You see, compassion is a God-given response to human need that always results in action. 
And this Samaritan had a compassion on this guy. It's kind of like Luke 15. When the, when the father sees the son in the distance, there's a compassion that comes over him. And he gets up and he moves and he runs towards his son. That's compassion. It's a gift that, that where we see need and there's always an action that follows. See, God is a God of compassion because he always initiates. He always moves with compassion. He has a compassion about him. And then it says this. This compassion, is, it, it flows from this guy. And in verse 34, it says, And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. So this guy was ready. He had this stuff with him. And he put oil because it kind of would soften the skin. He put wine on it because it would... It would, it would take care of bacteria and all this kind of thing. He would bandage it to keep bacteria and all this kind of stuff from growing all over, I guess, his body, wherever he was hurt, wherever he was, he was beaten, that would happen. And then, uh, here's, here's the thing, though, too, is that priest and that Levite probably had this same thing with him. This little, little uh, first aid kit, you know, that's what kind of this is. People who carried those around, that was a normal thing to do. These guys probably had the same thing, but they did not use them. And then it says, verse 34, the rest of 34 says, Then he put the man on his own donkey. Okay, so this man was probably uh, a businessman. He had a lot of uh, donkeys and all scum. He put him on his donkey. He probably had two or three others there. He put this man up on his donkey, loaded him up in the SUV, and headed over to the inn. Okay? So they're on their way to the inn. Now, don't think Hampton Inn. I'm talking about the new Hampton Inns. They're nice, man. You been to the one in Buda? I'm not talking old school Hampton. I'm talking the new Hampton. They're sure they're 100 bucks a night. It's a real deal, okay? But don't think Hampton Inn. Because an inn in this day, what you really, what the way it worked in this day, really think home away. In this, in this day, you wouldn't stay at the inn if you were going to Jerusalem or wherever. You would stay with somebody. And somebody would invite you into their house and the home away, they would actually be there with you, okay? And they would feed you and take care of you and all that. People that went to the inn and found an inn in their city to stay at were people that didn't belong in that city, okay? And they weren't, they were really despised people. There was something about them that was rejected by the culture. Uh, So let's just think about that. It'd be somebody like Mary, Mary and Joseph were looking for what Joseph went to the where and in. Why? Because she was a pregnant girl, unmarried. And no one would have her. So he had to go to the inn. So that's where this guy takes this man. And he said, and this is great. This is compassion. This is, this is love your neighbor. Look after him. He said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Not only is he compassionate, but he is committed. Hey, I've got to go do this thing. I'm going to be back. Please take care of this guy. I'll pay whatever it is. I'll pay whatever it is. I'll, I'll, I'll work this out. 
And then verse 36. Jesus asked a question, so the story's over. He turns to these people and probably just eye to eye with this lawyer and he asks this question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, we've got to compare two verses. Because in verse 29, what does he ask? In verse 29... He asked, this lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Okay? And so what he's doing is, who, who qualifies to be my neighbor? Obviously, that would be Jesus, another Jew. It would be somebody that's like me, that would qualify to be my neighbor. So, the, the lawyer's question, it, it focuses on, what am I not responsible for? What can I get out of? But Jesus' question is, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? What Jesus is saying, it's a question of focus is, basically, this question is about, comes back on us. Not who's my neighbor out there. Who is the neighbor here? It's not a question of who my neighbor is. Jesus saying is, you're the neighbor. You're the neighbor. You be the neighbor. Love people. Love your neighbor. You be that neighbor. And so people that are right, rightly related to God, love God first, and then they love their neighbor as themselves. Let me wrap this up, and we're going to do an interview real quick with some people in our church. Verse 37 says this, The expert in the law replied, the one who had, so he asked this question, you know, which of these three do you, do you think was a neighbor of the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And, and they replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, again, go and do likewise. This is our call. This is our lifelong pursuit on this earth to love God, to love your neighbor. Now, it's cool to talk about this, but I'm going to have Scott and Shannon Dahlstrom come here real quick, and uh, we're going to do a, just a quick interview on what God had, uh, has done in their lives and over the last um, few years. Why don't y'all give them a hand? All right, here we go. And, you know, it's cool to, you know, for us to say, uh, we're the neighbor. It's our call. Everybody's my neighbor. I love everybody. And, but it's also cool to see and talk about how that happened in their lives. And so I, I'm going to ask Scott and Shannon a couple of questions, and they're going to just dialogue with us about their experience of, of, uh, 
of being loved by the community, by, by, uh, by people. And um, let me just start with this. What, uh, what was the, I know you guys at one point in your lives, you were going to church and all this kind of stuff. What, what happened? I know you had left for a while and, and whatever. What happened that moved you from that to, um, to not, to just bailing on, on God maybe and the church and all that? Tell us about that. Well, where it started, uh, basically, I grew up in a Lutheran church my entire life, um, off and on. I mean, it wasn't like it was every Sunday deal, but when it was convenient, my family went to church. And uh, it was more of a social status, more of uh, just that checklist. Uh, never really got much out of church, didn't really know why we went. Um, but we did go. Uh, like I said, my grandparents, my my family all grew up in a Lutheran church, um, different than Shannon. And I'll let Shannon share a little bit on hers real quick. Well, I grew up in a single parent home and we were very poor. And, um, when I was four years old, the church came around knocking on doors and invited anyone who wanted to come to church that they would send around a van and pick us up. And, uh, that was the only break my mom ever got for myself and my two sisters. So every Sunday we looked forward to it and, uh, the church took us in and and uh, we never had any parents there at church with us, and people took us in right next to them and taught us how to read hymnals and how to find books in the Bible. And it was um, it was a great experience for us, and we loved it. Um, but then when I turned ten, um, new leadership came into the church, and they uh, they said there weren't enough people sitting in the pews, and uh, they wanted to know why all these kids. These 20 kids were coming to church, and there were no parents with them. And so they went and knocked on our parents' doors and told them that your kids can come to church, but only if you come because we need you to tithe. And uh, so my mom didn't have clothes nice enough to wear and didn't have any money to give. We tried to go one time, and no one talked to us. So uh, that was when I was 10. Then the next time I went back to church was when Scott and I started dating. And uh, I went because his family went. And I went to pursue a relationship with Scott, not really with God. And (laughs) 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 And they had a long um, check-off list of things that I needed to do. I had to go to classes, and I had to be baptized, and... I had to become a member of their church before I could marry him. So I just did it because it was on my list of things to do before the wedding. And that was our experience with church. And then, uh, like I said, we got married in 2000. uh, Continued going to the the same church, uh, Big Lutheran Church here in Austin. Um, They were in the process in 2001 of building a brand new church, which the church we were married in was beautiful it was absolutely amazing church big church but they needed bigger better things more rooms to put on programs and all that so while they were in that process the pastor was up one day talking about it and uh, basically started condemning uh, guys that were driving big four-wheel drive trucks out in the parking lot and the money we were spending on that but the church needed at least the they put a sample of these new pews that they wanted which we already had some picked out but the new pews were going to be two thousand dollars more a pew and we really needed to give to that. We needed to give to a building. 
to me, that just hit me wrong. And then in the foyer, they put up a a uh, little bulletin board deal that showed who had tied the most to the church and kind of did the top ten list. And that's when I walked out of the church. I said it wasn't right. Uh, what we were doing just seemed fake. It just seemed like we're just, you know, that checklist deal again. That's where our family, you know, tells us we're supposed to come here. So that's what we did for social status. And uh, it just, my my view of God at that time was just, it, it wasn't real uh, to me. It was it was a joke. They weren't serving people. They wanted a building. It just, yeah, I mean, it was about money. It wasn't really about loving anybody, taking care of anybody. It was more about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's, in 2001, we walked away from church completely. So what, all right, so time goes on, okay? Years, months go on. What What was the thing that, kind of a turning point, or there's probably several things, but what are the few things that led you guys back to God? Well, after we left that, uh, you know, I work in a construction trade. <clears throat> I'm trying to do this without crying, y'all. Um, Working in a construction trade, I was uh, hanging out with a lot of buddies. I was uh, trying to pursue a roping career, uh, wanting a rodeo, wanting to do all that. Uh, I was very seldom home. Uh, I was battling a meth addiction. <clears throat> and basically, I wasn't a person I needed to be. I wasn't a husband. I wasn't a father. I was in a very bad place in my life. Me and Shannon were on the brink of divorce. Uh, I just wasn't there. Uh, I would come in at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, leave for work at 6. Uh, didn't really want to be home. I had my son, Ty. I wasn't being a dad to him. I uh, focused on everything that I wanted and other things that were more important to me than focusing on my family and focusing on uh, my son. And so I was just at a very horrible, horrible place in my life. Well, during that time, I took on the role as the major breadwinner, and I was a single parent. And trying to work an 80-hour-a-week job was really hard. And um, we uh, we definitely didn't have a marriage relationship at all. And any time we spoke to each other was tension or yelling and fighting. And uh, no one liked to come to our house. And... uh, and when anyone walked into our house, God made sure that they knew they weren't welcome there. And so I was alone a lot of the time. And and then um, in 2007, in January of 2007, um, our son got really sick. And uh, doctors here didn't know what to do, so they sent us on a chase all over the nation to try to find out what was wrong with him. And uh, as his health just continued to decline and we watched his little body deteriorate, Scott still wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so uh, my parents took a lot of the weight because Dakota was a baby. And uh, we spent a lot of time away from her uh, while we were traveling. And after 15 months of trying to make him better, um, I ran out of family medical leave and... I had to resign from my position, and so then we had no income, and our marriage was falling apart. We'd thrown so much money at trying to take care of Ty that we didn't have any left, 
And um, our son was still really sick. And at that time is when we, we were just hopeless. We didn't have anything left. Um, everything we'd worked for and everything that we thought that our lives would be like was, was gone. And um, at that time, I just, just prayed that, um, that God would give us a church home that Scott would feel comfortable and, and that he would work things out. And uh, Scott was really resistant because he didn't, he was, we had such bad experiences in the church. So um, anywhere I went, he never came with me. And I was just in it by myself. So I knew I was at a point in my life where I had to change some things. Uh, didn't really want to. Like I said, as Shannon said, I was very resistant to church. I was resistant to the change, but I knew where we were was lost. And I knew for my son, I needed to start t- stepping up and doing something different. And in 2008, in 2008, we uh, were leaving to go to Minnesota one more time to the Mayo Clinic. And uh, we'd made several trips up there, but we were leaving it. Six o'clock in the morning, we were getting on the plane. We had Ty and Dakota with us. And, uh, you know, going through the airport with two little kids can be hectic. And so frustration was up. Everything was crazy. We get on the plane. We get sat down. Barely get sat down and Ty's, Dad, I got a question for you. Dad, I got a question for you. And I didn't want to hear him. We were, like I said, frustrated. Uh, We were still kind of in the deal where we weren't working together as a team at all. Um, Me and Ty were actually sitting in first class of the plane. Shannon and Dakota were in the back. (laughs) And uh, me and Ty are sitting there and Finally, I just um, like I just want him to be quiet, and I was like, "Ty, what is it? You got to tell me what what's the deal? What's so important right now?" He said, "Dad, why don't we go to church?" And my first thought is, "What did your mom put you up to?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I kind of got aggravated, and I was like, "Well, I don't know. I want to find out why is this kid asking me this?" And I was like, "So, well, what's up, bub? What, what's the deal?" He said, I don't know, Dad. I just feel something in my heart that tells me God wants us in church. And at that point, I crushed. Because I knew I'd been to church enough to know my job as a husband and a dad to make sure my kids were in church. So I knew that much. So it crushed me. And so that was just on my mind. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, While we're there at this time, like Shannon had just said, she had been praying over and over and over reading scripture she was trying she was doing her part every time she hit me with church i was that you know here's that holier than now stuff throwing at me again you know i'm a failure and she's great and so that really disturbed me caused a lot of aggravation and anger and fights between us and uh while we're there we were there for for a good while and uh that trip was over a month trip and uh i get a call from my brother-in-law who lives right by me you got to pass his house to get to ours and uh, he said, hey, there's this guy from this church that's looking for you. So here I am. Shannon's been praying. I'm sitting here knowing in my heart i got to change. My son's asking me why I don't take him to church. My brother-in-law's calling, hey, there's this guy from this church looking for you. And I'm like, all right, God, what is this? What's going on? I don't, I don't know. So at the time, the Jehovah's Witnesses were coming to our house all the time. So I'm like, okay, great. I get to talk to these guys again. And I... Uh, I asked my brother-in-law, I said, okay, well, who is it? So he gives me the number of this guy named Aaron Schrant and John Church. 
And uh, he said, they were looking for you. They had a flyer from Chili's for a benefit for Ty. And I thought, well, okay, what's the, I'll call him. So I tried to call Aaron. He didn't answer. But I called John. And uh, John says, look, he said, this is the deal. He said, I really didn't, you know, this has no ties to the church. I don't want you to think this has anything to do with the church other than we're just trying to show Jesus' love to the community. And explain this kingdom assignment deal that they were doing. And uh, it was basically challenging people to go out in the community and, and uh, just try to show love to the community and help somebody out. So he saw this flyer and was wanting to help with that. And one thing that hit hard with my heart, and it just set deep, is that John said, we want you to have no commitment to the church. We don't expect you to show up. We don't expect you to come. We just want to show you love. And that was it. I was like, okay, so you're asking nothing from me. Other than just to love my family for no reason. You don't even know who I am. So, um, I mean, just uh, that phone call hit huge with me. And uh, I was still a little bit resistant. And, and then you want to talk about the... Well, that was in April of 2008. And so I was excited because I wanted to go to church. And I knew that... We needed something more. And uh, so I kept waiting for him to ask and want to go since it was just right down the road. And uh, he didn't. So Mother's Day came up. And he woke up that morning and everyone got dressed. And he said, this is your day. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to church. And we went. And that was May of 08. It will be five years next week. Hmm. Let's give him a hand. So, so all that to say that it just took one guy who saw a flyer in Chili's and God's compassion hit him and said, I, I just want to help this family. It's really that simple. And I think sometimes in our minds we think, well, this love your neighbors is just, I could never do that. No, you, you can. And, and through God's power and his strength, you will. You will. Let's say something. It's off. Sorry. Um, I just want to say one thing on that, too, is uh, I don't know if I've ever told Aaron Trent what that meant to me. But uh, that one little act changed my entire life. It changed our marriage. It changed my household. It changes the way I look at God, the way I serve. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have this huge relationship where we hung out every week on a Bible study. We didn't hang out as best friends at barbecues and do stuff like that. We're friends. I hold him dear to my heart. But he made one little act. That's all he did. And it changed my entire relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So I would just say, when the Spirit's in you, I don't care if you know somebody, if you don't know them, if you've, been, if you've been friends with them for a long time. When the Spirit tells you you need to say something and do something and act, act on it. Because you can change somebody's entire life and the path of their future and their relationship with God. Hmm. Just don't take it lightly. That's right. Let's pray.